My sense is that as people do deep practice, they become more sensitive to the social and global challenges and dysfunctions we face. Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within, to seek out new joys and new methods of awakening, to boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome back, friends and family, to Awareness Explorers. Good to have you. We have a special guest today, Dr. Roger Walsh, who I am a big fan of and have been for about 40 years now. But before we do an interview of Roger, I want to say hi to my co-host. How are you doing, Brian? I am very well, Jonathan. I'm really looking forward to this chat today. You know, one of the things about Dr. Walsh that I like is just he has broad interest in so many topics around spirituality. So let's go right into his bio. Roger Walsh, MD, PhD, DHL, is a professor emeritus of psychiatry, philosophy, and anthropology at UC Irvine, where he does research focused on topics such as meditation, psychological well-being, wisdom, and our global crisis. His books include Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices, the World of Shamanism, The Psychology of Human Survival, and The World's Great Wisdom. His research and writings have received over 20 national and international awards. He's a student, researcher, and teacher of contemplative traditions and an authorized Lama in Tibetan Buddhism. With John Dupuy, he co-hosts the podcast Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, with listeners in over 130 countries. His more curious careers include having been a circus acrobat and having an extremely brief and unsuccessful career as a stand-up comedian. Well, Roger, welcome to Awareness Explorers. Yeah, thanks so much, Jonathan, and thank you, Brian. Well, where should we start? There's so many places here. You know, with your late wife, Frances Vaughn, you almost like uh, were one of the most important introduction books of transpersonal psychology. How'd you get into all this, what my dad used to call weird stuff as an MD? Well, that's exactly what I thought it was for <laughs> much of my life. Uh, let's see. Well, I was born in Australia, went through my medical school and and scientific training there, came to California to Stanford to do my psychiatry training. And California has a way of changing people. <laughs> Um, I was doing therapy on people and didn't really think it worked. And probably in my hands at that stage, it didn't. But I felt I had a moral obligation to try a little bit of myself. So I went in for what I thought would be a few weeks of therapy with a remarkable therapist by the name of Jim Bugenthal. And Jim was able to uh, help me tune into my inner world, which I had not known existed. And I ended up, ended up very quickly feeling like I'd spent my entire life living on the top six inches of a wave on top of an inner ocean that I didn't even know existed. And it just blew me away. I mean, how could I have spent my entire life unaware of this? And as I looked around at our culture, it seemed like 99% of the world and the culture was also unaware of this. And I was, I was really shaken and it took me quite some time to begin putting this together. And and I, so I dove into a lot of other practices and eventually found myself doing contemplative practices, you know, chanting, drumming, trying meditation without much success. And I couldn't figure out why, because I knew religion was the opiate of the masses. And why was I <laughs> becoming addicted to an opiate or trying an opiate? Um, and it, I just wrestled with this question. And one day, literally, as I was walking across the living room floor, it hit me that Behind the conventional institutions with their myths and dogmas and rituals were a family of psycho-spiritual technologies for tra training the mind and inducing the same states and realizations the founders had realized. 
and that literally the the esoteric uh, little known aspects of the great religions were psycho-spiritual technologies. And there were two kinds of religion. There's a conventional religion which centers on on believing in a, a narrative, a story, a particular story. If you believe the story, you're saved. If you don't, you're damned. And there's a much less well-known religious tradition which centers on transforming heart and mind and inducing the similar realizations, states of mind, etc., as the founders had. So that just totally blew my world uh, open. And, and uh, I've been trying to make sense of it ever since. <laughs> Yes, it seems to me that um, even though we think of all the religions as very different from each other, there's sort of one level, uh, maybe you would call it the mystical tradition or or the um, the people who are looking for a direct experience of the divine, that they all have much more in common with each other than we than we think about. That underneath all religions, that core seems to be very similar and run through it a lot. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, Brian, and would probably want to nuance that. In fact, you're giving voice to what's sometimes called the transcendental unity of religions, uh, that in their transcendental realizations, the idea was that there's a unity. Uh, I think with our contemporary understanding over the last few decades of contemplative practices and mystical traditions across the world, and keep in mind, as you well know, this is the first time in history we've had all the world's traditions available to us to do the kind of comparative analyses that we can now do. And also, for the first time in the West, we've had a psychology of states of consciousness and developmental stages by which we can analyze these traditions. So whereas there was this recognition of what's called the transcendental unity of uh, mystical traditions that you point to, now, I think we have to be significantly more nuanced and recognize that the realizations are not exactly the same across traditions. They have what, uh, for example, Hamid Ali calls a different logos or realizations. They also have different states uh, and culminating states to some degree. And they also have their center of gravity around different degrees of and kinds of altered states. So I think we can give a more nuanced discernment of what was formerly just lost as the transcendental unity of traditions. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've been involved in the, uh, the work of Dr. Jeffrey Martin, who you might know, uh, and he has... I know him more as a result of having read your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he talks about different locations or different types of enlightenment or awakening, which is uh, very interesting, <laughs> and he teaches courses to to get into these different locations. You know, you've been uh, in this ball game. Can I just say say something, uh, Jonathan? That, yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciated your summaries of his work. And he, as you point out, he has four main uh, divisions. Mm -hmm. And but if, and if we look at them, they are, seem largely based on the depth, uh, depth and the stability of certain altered states. I don't think he, as I look at it, he doesn't seem to be mapping nuances of different families of states, for example, concentrative states, awareness states, um, uh, different degree, different kinds of awareness states, such as uh, Sahaj, Samadhi, Nova Kalpa, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a useful first categorization, but there's mm -hmm. more work to be done, which I'm sure you'd agree with. Yeah. Not yeah. saying anything and, you don't know. And since uh, the book was written a year ago, he's actually created more nuanced. Uh, oh, he has. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you've been in this uh, ball game for a long time. I'm curious um, how you see it's changing and if you see any sense of where the direction might be leading let's see you're thinking now of the of our understanding of these traditions uh, yeah and how call it the whole area of spirituality uh is is changing like for example you know i i list i interviewed a lot of spiritual teachers 40 years ago or 35 years ago and at that time things like the word god were very 
used. Now hardly anyone uses that term. Uh, nobody in, in the 40 people I interviewed really talked about somatic practices. So those are a couple of things I've noticed are, are major differences, but um, I'm wondering what you've noticed is is the trends that you see. Let's see. That's a, that's an interesting question, and particularly how to if we can project anything from that. Well, uh, let's see. Of course, there have been waves that have occurred. If we start back with the say the introduction of psychedelics in the sixties. <clears throat> That that the psychedelics unleashed on a very unsuspecting, naive Western world, the recognition that there was an extraordinary plasticity of consciousness that was available, and that it was quite possible for us all to access a wide variety of altered states, which we in the West had known nothing about. We were in the West what's called a monophasic society. This is an anthropological term, meaning that we derived our worldview primarily from one state of consciousness, namely the waking state, as opposed to other, uh, most other cultures, which are polyphasic. They draw their worldview not only from the waking state, but for example, from dreams, from trance states, from spiritual states of one kind or another, from fasting, etc. So in one way, they have a richer repertoire of states from which they draw in their <clears throat> understanding of themselves and reality. So I would say one of the big overarching but almost never recognized evolutions in the West has been the transition which we are current, we are still undergoing from a monophasic society to a polyphasic society. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. And once you appreciate that, then a lot of things begin to make sense. For example, everything, you know, the if you look back, say, from the the 60s, the Cultural Revolution, that was a, a birth of, a initial birth of polyphasic segments of society and a clash between polyphasic and monophasic elements of society. So that has been continuing. Uh, we follow, Following that, there was an influx of traditions from the East, and we are all beneficiaries of, the, of that. And that in turn led to the recognition that, oh, wait a minute, our own own Western uh, religious traditions contain hidden behind the mainstream uh, conventional myths and dogmas and institutions do contain contemplative practices. They've just been hidden, and in some cases necessarily so, because uh, they could lead to realizations which led to an identity with the, the divine. And that was uh, in, in uh, for example, the Western monotheism, Judaism, Jesus got crucified for that realization. In Islam, Al-Hajj got crucified for the same realization. And the West people got put on funeral pyres for that realization. So, so it was basically viewed as heresy. But there has been this recognition that, yes, our Western traditions do contain these practices. They're not as well known, but they're gradually coming out of the closet. And so some practices such as center, uh, Father Thomas Keating's centering prayer are now having widespread influences. And so there has been a, a what we call mysticization of, uh, or contemplatization of the West as these practices are coming in. There is also a, a greater diversity of practices now. We have, for the first time in history, all the world's contemplative practices available. And for the first time, we can begin to discern both common factors. And you were kind enough to mention my book, Essential Spirituality, and that's what subtitle is Seven Central Practices. And that's what it was basically about. I remember my trying to make sense of looking across these traditions. Well, what are the greatest sages, saints and sages who've ever landed on the planet say are the most important qualities of heart and mind for us all to cultivate? And how do they how what they, how do they say we can develop them? Mm -hmm. So that was my attempt at an answer to that. And I found seven qualities of heart and mind, like concentration, wisdom altruism, ethics, etc., which seem to be universal across any authentic tradition. Mm -hmm. um, 
You also point to another trend that's occurred, and that is uh, the interface of psychology and spirituality. Uh, I think, I don't know about you, but in my naive phase, I'd love to think I'm not naive now, but if I live longer, I'm sure I will think I am. A lot of us assume that spiritual practice would do it all, and in most cases it doesn't. Uh, As you pointed out in your nice book, The Enlightenment Project, the it uh, spiritual practices can leave untouched various elements of the psyche, often known as the shadow elements. There's a beautiful book by Connie Zweig that's just coming out in a couple of couple of weeks called um, Shadow and Spirituality, I think. So that's recognized, and now one of the one of the gifts and challenges of our time is how do we find the optimal combination of practices for each of us at each stage of our development. And that's an ongoing question. We also have introduced to the by the West for the first time in history a variety of technologies for inducing altered states. We can think of brain-mind machines, and we can think of psychedelics. And we can also think of two things that none of us would have predicted would have a major impact on the culture, but they have. One is resuscitation technology, with millions of people having had near-death experiences, and you've worked on that. And another is space travel. You know, people have what's called an overview effect. They go into space, they look down on the Earth for the first time, and a number of these people have had life-changing mystical experiences. So here we have four technologies, completely unexpected, which are also playing into this potpourri of uh, practices and techniques and ways of accessing altered states we have. And then maybe to round it off, I don't want to take up your whole hour, uh, we now have people who are doing analyses, cross-cultural and cross-traditional analyses of the different traditions, the different states of consciousness, the different practices, and beginning to map them and contrast them and point to systemic uh, maps by which we can really make sense of them the whole way. And the 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 master of this is Ken Wilber, who has mm-hmm. produced what's called a, a meta-theory, that is a theory of theories. So he's put together a very, the biggest map we have of, of uh, the ways in which different uh, traditions and practices cultivate specific states and the ways in which they and the kinds of states they induce and the the sequence in which they tend to emerge. I guess one final thing drawing on the recent work of Ken Will that I'll just add is it's clear that the contemplative traditions can induce altered states. It's not so clear that they necessarily induce psychological maturation through what are called post-conventional stages. That is, I would say, one of the most important, maybe exciting discovery of psychology in the last 50 years is that people can, we can mature through recognizable states, sorry, stages of development beyond the conventional level, so-called post-conventional stages. It's like changing your operating system. An older stage is like changing a program. Change a program, you have different experience. So you can see you're very... You know, you're distinctly older, but developmental stages are more like changing the background operating system. You don't even necessarily recognize you've moved through another stage. Mm-hmm. And it requires psychological testing to really be clear about it uh, and to map these stages out. But what we now have is the recognition that great spiritual traditions have given us these incredible techniques and maps for for accessing higher states of consciousness Western psychology is giving us a map of stages of development. Now we have the opportunity to bring them together and a comp- I think a comprehensive and um, well-tailored program of human flourishing mm-hmm. will necessarily entail both and the integration of both. That was quite an overview, <laughs> Roger. The, I, think, I think you uh, covered that uh, really well. And it also gives me hope to see that this is progressing, you know, technology is obviously progressing. uh, And the understanding of all this 
psychological and spiritual maturation. If you look back, you know, 50 years, it's in a totally different ballpark than it was. And, and so thank you for that overview. Uh, Brian, I know you had a question. Well, one of my, as I mentioned before we started the interview, one of my most, uh, one, one topic I'm most interested in, and this is really based on my own experience, is that a shift in identity from the, from the personal individual self to a larger field of awareness, it has many, many names for it, seems to be healthy. It seems to promote well-being and happiness, at least for me. And I, I watched an interview with you. Um, it, was, uh, it was on Closer to Truth, and it was called What Makes Personality Continue. And you said, what we're taking to be ourselves is actually an image rather than what we really are. We suffer from a case of mistaken identity. So how does this, how does this mistake happen? And, and what, what is our true identity? <laughs> well, it's good you're starting with the easy questions. <laughs> uh, let's see, what is this? Well, first off, I, I would agree with what you're implying, Brian, and that is that at the heart of the great contemplative traditions is the recognition and aspiration that uh, what we usually take to be ourselves is actually a a very partial and fragmented uh, self-sense, and that there is a far greater identity awaiting recognition. And so what is this, quotes what I was calling a case of mistaken identity, what is this mistaken identity? Well, first off, we should acknowledge this seems to be part of a developmental progression. And so it's important that, you know, the, I, I hesitate to use the word ego because one of the most the two, two of the most overused words in the English language which carry multiple meanings are ego and self. But maybe if we define our terms carefully and say ego in the case, in the way we're using it, is referring to the separate self-sense, then we can say that the de development of the ego is actually a developmental achievement. It takes some years for a child to develop a firm, stable self-representation or, or separate self-sense ego. However, it's it's ideally it's an intermediate stage rather than a final stage as our culture thinks. So and what is that that ego? Well, if you look at it, it's uh, most generally what we would call a self-representation. That is a, it's a representation of what it says, self-representation made up of subcomponents which are given names like self-concept, self-narrative, self-image. And for anyone who does uh, insight-oriented meditation, looks at the nature, looks at, at their experience, one of the startling revelations is that when we look for our self-sense, what we find is that it breaks, it, we, it is deconstructed into constituent mental elements, a thought, an image, a, a narrative, a fantasy, etc., etc. However, usually those arise so quickly and our introspective sensitivity is so uh, blunted or underdeveloped that we suffer from what psychologists call flicker fusion, which is the th same thing that happens in a movie. You know, you get a movie as one still frame, one still frame after another, after another. But due to flick of fusion, the mind creates a movie, quotes. Similarly, we do the same thing with, uh, with our self-representation, assuming that there is a stable identity, and that is who we are. Now, the contemplative traditions deconstruct that identity in a variety of ways, either through seeing through it, as in, say, Vipassana, by questioning it, as in your practice, Brian, of self-inquiry with Ramana Maharshi, of decathecting it, that is, taking energy out of it in, say, Karma Yoga, by dissolving it in love in Bhakti Yoga or love practices, etc. And what is found to be underlying that is a, a transpersonal identity, 
which, depending on the orientation of the practice, is experienced as in you describe as pure awareness, vast, boundless, pure awareness. Uh, in other cases, it may be experienced as uh, pure love, pure mind, Satchitananda, you know, as self with a capital S, etc. Now, there's debate about to what extent these are, are the same experience, and, and there's a uh, People, a lot of people would say, well, they're just different facets, and probably they are. People like Hamid Ali, who's a, a, certainly a spiritual genius, uh, says, you know, they're, they're not, people think they're all the same, but they're not the same. They have different phenomenological qualities, these things, and you can't just say they're all the same. But clearly, there is a, there is this potential for a transpersonal realization. Now, you raised the, the really tricky question, Brian, of why is there, why does awareness identify with this representation? Why is there a case of mistaken identity and why does it persist for most people throughout a lifetime? And that gets trickier. And I don't have, pretend to have the answer for what are the actual mechanisms. I mean, you can look at various traditions and say, you know, and say Sankhya, which is the philosophy, Indian philosophy underlying yoga, Patanjali's yoga. You know, the awareness and and phenomena are in that tradition, there's a strict dualism, that, but between awareness and phenomena, including the phenomena of mind, but awareness apparently is said to illuminate and activate illuminate mind in such a way that it looks as though it's independent, etc. So, so, you know, different stories. Um, I, I'm curious what you've, how you've <laughs> both <laughs> have, con what you've concluded about what is the mechanism by which vast, boundless, infinite, eternal awareness, and I say, and we should qualify infinite, eternal, infinite, not in the sense of being really big, but being transpatial, eternal, not in the sense of being lasting a long time, but being transtemporal. How does this this thing mistake <laughs> 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 itself for this puny little body-mind? Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a sense that it has to do with the mind's desire to solve problems, and that that our sense of ourself actually is made up of these ideas about the problems to solve, because when we relax that idea uh, and when we start allowing things as they are, that identity seems to soften a bit. But I also suppose it's less important to really understand how the mistaken identity happens than what are some great ways to actually see through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm practically minded myself, and uh, that's largely what we talk about in terms of methods on this podcast. But uh, the why, I, I would say, because uh, God made it that way and to be entertained. If, you, if you're just awareness, then you, you miss all the juice yeah, and all the drama. So, you know, there's a natural tendency to get lost in stories. And, and actually, that ability to get lost in stories and identity is what really separates humans from most other animals, you know, that we can come up with these stories about green pieces of paper that we say are valuable, you know, or we get uh, stories about this is good and that's bad. And that's allowed us to form a, a uh, more complex survival of uh, the human family. Yeah, and that is one of the stories that great traditions come up with, that uh, God did it to him for amusement. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, it's and actually interesting. he has a bad sense of humor. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Stan Groff, who's uh, probably the world's greatest psychedelic researcher, who uh, one of his books is The Cosmic Game, in which he took the people who'd had the deepest psychedelic experiences and put them together to to piece together their collective experiences into a map of of consciousness and uh, meta cosmology, metaphysics, etc. And he his, he came up 
he felt that uh, people that had the deepest experiences had a similar realization to what you're describing, Jonathan, that it was kind of, there was a, a phenomenon which he called divine boredom. That mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of loneliness to just being by yourself. So, you know, create a cosmic game to play, hence the title of the book, The Cosmic Game, which is also very similar to other traditions such as Kashmir Shaivism, that, mm -hmm. uh, um, that again, she, uh, Shiva, the pure uh, infinite consciousness, as has as part of its potential shakti the the uh, capacity for universal energy and creation and also shakti has the capacity for concealment for both to both conceal and reveal the true nature of things so so i think you're you're pointing out of your own experience to something that uh, yeah. yeah is part of the our, our global heritage mm -hmm. You know, you have explored a lot of practices, and, and some of them are also in the shamanistic tradition, which gets very little bandwidth for most people in the West. Have you found something in that exploration that you found personally useful and or found very interesting? Well, I, I certainly found it interesting and fascinating. I did some did some shaman, did shamanic training with uh, Michael Hanna, the great Westerner who was trained in shamanism, one of the first, I think, probably one of the very first Westerners to be deeply trained in shamanism. And then he distilled the practices from around the world. I found it personally, the thing which got me into shamanism was that after I had kind of got some sense of the practices and ideas behind the great religious traditions and begun to synthesize them in uh, essential spirituality. The one tradition which I could not understand or make sense of was shamanism. Mm. And it really took me a long time before I realized, oh, they have a very different focus. Their central practice is what's called the shamanic journey, in which they enter an altered state experience themselves as souls or spirits who travel through the cosmos, meet other beings, spirits, obtain knowledge and wisdom and power from them, and then bring that power and wisdom back to their tribe to heal and to help and to, and to serve. And that's a very different central practice from other, the world's you know, great traditions with their focus on more meditative yogic. The, the shamans also use primarily external stimuli as a way of inducing their altered states, mm -hmm. as opposed to the internal stimuli of meditation. So the shamans will rely on things like fasting, expo exposure to cold or heat, uh, drumming and music and dancing are very important. And so the ways of inducing trance states for, for them. And they are, you know, trance is an overused term too, but we can use it for now and say they are trance states rather than, say, the the meditative uh, exploration, in introspective, explorative states of, say, Vipassana or the pure awareness states of, say, uh, Ramana Maharshi, etc., and Advaita Vedanta. Wow, that is so fascinating to hear. Uh, it really is. And but I was just struck by something when you described the the journey uh, into other realms and the meeting beings and learning wisdom, wisdom, bringing it back to your tribe. That actually describes the underlying plot of the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's uh -huh. actually it is actually about that, although they couch it in a science fiction alternative alternate universe. Um, metaphor, but it's it's the same. It's the same journey to meet other versions of yourself. In this case, and maybe in shamanism, it's other beings, learning skills, bringing them home to the interpersonal relationships within the family. So mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. mm. I appreciate your description, Roger, because my wife is actually into shamanism. I've had a hard uh -huh. time. A hard time understanding it and your description may oh yeah 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 okay that makes sense that is what she's doing and uh it's nice to have mental maps like that um 
what do you think, you know, nowadays, and a large portion of this podcast is geared towards moving towards non-dualism. And um, I'm wondering your observations, do those states, uh, in your experience, help people experience psychological maturity? Or is that a totally separate pathway? Well, now we're getting into a place where I have have some charge. <laughs> I, I, uh, non-dual is getting so overused these days, and uh, that that I have have some pro- <laughs> problems with the use of the term. First off, we need to distinguish between its different uses. It was originally. Uh, primarily used in association with Advaita Vedanta, the the Hindu uh, tradition. And there it meant it referred to the non-duality of all phenomena, all all phenomena, material, mental, etc., and the absolute, the sat, the chit, ananda, the being, consciousness, bliss of, uh, of absolute reality. And the idea that those were not as for example, yoga had originally thought strictly dualistic, but rather were of the same nature, that they were manifestations, expressions, projections of the divine, of Brahman, etc. So that was the fundamental, that was the original meaning of non-duality. Then it got, it was kind of, there was a phase in the West where Oh, non-duality is the highest state. Well, then somewhat everyone became non-dual and mm-hmm. and uh you know non-dual non-dual this, non-dual that. It was like quantum physics in the eighties. It's like everything quantum this, quantum that, until the point of nausea. So um I now non-duality seems, and you you focus on this more than I, so I'd love your perspective. But from what I can see, it's it's sent it's settled into largely meaning the uh, a non differentiation of self and other or self you know the the distinction between uh, the se- the dissolution of the separate self sense. Would you agree with that, Brian? What are your thoughts? Well, that certainly is the focus of uh, of many teachers, like I would say uh, Angelo Delulo, who we've had on here focus of the dissolution of the sense of the separate self. Although I think that the um, the unity of all things and the idea that we are Brahman, I, I actually, I'm, I'm very bad at using um, ancient terms. I would just say the universe or what we might call God is, is what is looking out our eyes and the, and the direct experience of that is what I would, what I would, how I would refer to non-duality. Mm-hmm. I like to differentiate as a non-dual one and non-dual two. Uh, Non-dual one, this is a Michael Taft thing, is that uh, it's awareness and the objects of awareness are actually dualistic, um, that you can be awareness and you can look out as awareness. And non-dual two is where those things actually merge and you realize that awareness and everything is all just one thing, and there's no sense of an individual self at that point. So you're right that any description on dual actually has to be preceded by what the hell are people talking about, because everybody has different definitions. Mm -hmm. But the other problem with non-duality today is the I guess you would call it the non-dual police who would say, well, as soon as you mention anything about your body or your life and say, oh, that's that's not non-dual. The expression, you know, so as if as if to deny our worldly experience as somehow it doesn't exist, it doesn't happen. And, and people put it out of their minds and say, that's not real. That's all illusory. And where if non-duality were true and all is actually just one, then wouldn't that also include duality, include our human experience and our identification with the divine all together simultaneously? Yeah, some of the critiques of uh, 
I have trouble with uh, with some of the uses of, of non-dual, and I have trouble with some of the critiques of non-dual too, because <laughs> some of the critiques are pretty dualistic. That's not that's not part of non-duality. Well, that's a pretty limited view of right non-duality, yeah. and so, yeah, one of the problems in this whole field of spirituality and contemplative practices, since we're talking about. Uh, for the large part, subjective experiences, it's very easy to be uh, use the terms vaguely, and I think that's you know in so many cases that's what gets us into trouble. And uh, and there's real value in a kind of preci- precision in some of the you know, in, you know thinking and analyses about these things, and otherwise they come almost uh, platitudinous in a way. Yeah, uh, you know science has been able to proceed and and evolve because everything has very precise definitions. Whereas when it comes to spirituality, one person's word of the word God or non-dual or, or uh, ecstasy or shamanism, nobody really knows what they're talking about, but we all throw these words around and it'd be nice if there was a, maybe you can work on this, uh, Roger, a, a spiritual dictionary. You know, that describes each of these things very precisely. Well, there's a there's a good opportunity for <laughs> for conflict. <laughs> well, <with> different <laughs> definitions. Although I must say, I just finished uh, your book, Essential Spirituality, and that comes pretty close. I mean, that is a wonderful primer on uh, on the entire uh, on so many aspects. Uh, it seems to really touch all the bases. Mm. Oh, thank you very much. I'm delighted. Yeah, thanks, Brian. And speaking of of great books, uh, I read your book in 1984 when I was, you know, seven, no, um, uh, younger, uh, called "Staying Alive: The Psychology of Human Survival," and it really impacted me. It's, it's in one of the top 20 books I've ever read, in which you talk about how we could use our psychological, spiritual understandings to perhaps create a better world. Um, that was, you know, 39 years ago. I would give ourselves a a D in our ability. The entire world did not read your book, Roger, unfortunately. You got the Dalai Lama and Linus Pauling to write forwards for it. So it certainly had uh, a lot of people supporting it. But it seems like we, as a culture right now, this is just my opinion, are not using any of these psychological, spiritual insights to make the world a more... Uh, healthy place. Uh, what's your opinion about that? Yeah, it's a very sad obs- observation, Jonathan, that the world is uh, in an even more dangerous place perhaps now than it was uh, in 1984 when I wrote that book, which is was at the height of the Cold War. And we could have you know, ended civilization and incinerated ourselves in a matter of hours. And fortunately, we escaped that at that time anyway. But unfortunately, the complexity and challenges and dangers have multiplied. Uh, we have a, an incredible imbalance between exponential technology and a, which is just ex- developing at accelerating rates, giving us enormous power and a very slow evolution of inequalities like ethics, ethics, wisdom, altruism, et cetera, et cetera. So this imbalance, of course, is getting worse uh, as we as we speak. And so we are in, we have created a whole new slew of problems that uh, is in the what 40 almost 40 years since that book was was written. And we now are facing things like you know ecological destruction and and new levels and kinds of pollution and artificial intelligence, and it's a long list. In fact, I'm currently doing a chapter, final chapter for a book on uh, wise responses to the global crisis, and unfortunately, I came up with 10 major challenges we're facing. So, whereas the back then it was mainly ecological and nuclear. So, so our challenges are multiplying. The urgency of the situation, the complexity is multiplying, and we're really in a race between consciousness and catastrophe, and it's not clear which way it's going to go. 
we are kind of like the sorcerer's apprentice. We have we have developed enormous power and little wisdom. We've become nuclear giants and technological wizards while remaining ethical infants and wisdom dwarfs. You know, it's just incredible imbalance. The world, what we call our global problems. At this stage, are really global symptoms. They're symptoms of our technology is so powerful that we've been able to reframe, reshape the world in our own image. And once you realize that, you see that our global problems are actually global symptoms. I'd say to help the the positive thing is that uh, there are more, far more people uh, deeply concerned about these issues than there were when that original book was written. Uh, there's a gr rapidly growing movement of deeply concerned people. Uh, and unfortunately, what we call uh, normality, we can now recognize is, at least from my perspective, a an unrecognized collective developmental arrest. And it's a, a deluded state of mind. And so... We've really got a lot of work to do if we're going to if we're going to make it as a civilization. And you know, unfortunately, there have been lots of civilizations that have destroyed themselves before. The great historian Arnold Toynbee said that most civilizations actually end by suicide. Mm. So there's no reason we couldn't do be the same. Is there any place uh, so, you is there any place that you tend to put your hope? Well, I think, in as I mentioned, in the number of people who are awakening to the issues, um, far more than before, there are just a lot of people who are awakening to this. The number of people who are adopting novel perspectives, uh, for example, trying to bring, bring different perspectives and approaches to these issues. Uh, the other thing is the uh, what you implied earlier, the acceleration of of spiritual practices in the world. You know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I said we're in a race in consciousness and catastrophe. It's you know, kind of in one sense, it sounds like a catch, just like a catchy line, but it is. I think it is true. Mm -hmm. And so, I think the question is, how can we how can we encourage people to become active in learning about and responding to these crises, and how can, what can we do to increase the number of people doing deep, sustained, contemplative practice? Because there is, my sense is that as people do deep practice, they become more sensitive to the social and global challenges and dysfunctions we, we face, and more motivated to do something about them, and hopefully to do them from a deeper perspective which recognizes their psychological and spiritual roots as well as their external manifestations and and symptoms. And one final thing which hasn't happened much, but I hope will, and that is that social and global activism will become married with contemplative practice, mm -hmm. particularly in the form of uh, a practice you mentioned in your in your book, the Enlightenment Project, Jonathan. That is karma yoga. Karma yoga is the yoga of work and action in the world, in which one's the central focus of one's work of one's practice is one's work in the world. And there is a way of transforming one's work in the world into a profound practice. And if anyone's interested, I've done a couple of articles on this, which you can find on the web on karma yoga. Just mm. seems like a really important practice for our times. And I, you know, I just encourage people to to look into it. And if you, you know, if you're a serious spiritual practitioner, uh, you're either in a monastery doing intensive practice, or you're in the world. And if you're in the world, one of the core recommendations across traditions is do the do your practice continuously. Well, if you're working and engaged in family and etc., how do you do your practice continually? Well, karma yoga is the time honored answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And maybe I can just say, you know, very little about it. If you with that, should I, should I do that? Yeah, I, 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 you know, we talked to Tammy Simon of Sounds True about karma yoga, and she said some things that really impacted me. And I think it's a discussion in spiritual circles that is underrepresented. I would agree completely, Jonathan. Um, 
And it's an essence. It's a simple practice. It's uh, you know, the, the classic text is the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, which describes the Kama Yogas as offering one's actions to, to God, doing the actions as impeccable and work as impeccably as one can while simultaneously, and this is the kicker, releasing attachment to the outcome. Now, that's the threefold essence, of course. Uh, there's great benefit in having uh, a more detailed map of things to do, such as, okay, well, we don't have to go through them all now. You probably don't want to go through a detailed description of the practice, but but there are ways of of refining that and looking at the elements one can bring together to make it a really profound and effective practice that requires no extra time. You're just doing your work, but you're doing it with a particular attitude and heightened awareness. To get the article, would you just uh, Google Roger Walsh Karma Yoga? Yeah, that should do it. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that is, uh, I think, really can be inspiring uh, and help people who say, well, what can I do? What do I do? This is, you know, the most common question. They might understand theoretically, but people want to know, and uh, what what can I do? And what do I do? And that's one, one way. And also, your book, Essential Spirituality, is actually filled with practical techniques that, that you can just, just do them, just try them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, thank you, Brian. And and I will give another, at the risk of giving another self-plug, I recently recognized that the exactly what you just said, that, gosh, I'm not the only one struggling to figure out what to do. So I actually wrote an article, which is on the web, a couple of forms, one under the Integral Life website, another under Perspectiva website, on, uh, titled something like, What Can I Do? Um, you know, looking at looking at what are the principles by which we can first discover our unique contribution, because everyone, everyone, all of us have a unique contribution by virtue of our own particular talents and capacities and contacts, etc. And once we have a sense of what we are drawn to, then how do we do it most skillfully and effectively in the most uh, profound way? So I think that's those are kind of the cons for each of us at this time. Mm -hmm. Well said. What are you uh, currently working on? Uh, you you tend not to uh, stay still. What what's your latest passion? <laughs> Let's see. There are two things motivating uh, Jonathan: uh, writing and uh, like you, a podcast. Right, the writing is. I hesitate to say this, but I'm trying to finish a book on wisdom. <laughs> which has taken me eight years. <laughs> Needless to say, it's. Uh, I hope I'm hoping it rubs off, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it's been a it's been quite a, a challenge, as you can imagine, doing doing a book on wisdom. But well, you could always I, have chat. You could always have Chat GPT write it. Well, that, that, I tried that. It it, it was. <laughs> not uh, not as uh, as wise as I'd hoped, <laughs> yeah, right, right. but probably in a couple of years it'd be able to do it. Um, so that's one project. The other is uh, like your own, doing a podcast over this last year, and I, I would like to mention that because I suspect that our listeners will overlap. Ours would probably be very interested to hear of your your explorers podcast, and yours may be interested to hear of ours, which is deep transformation, self society, spirit, and that pretty much describes what we're about. What are, we're really interested in. You know what is what are what is deep transformation, both of oneself, of society, and our and what is personal, psychological, spiritual, social, global transformation, and how can we foster that? And so uh, there's a lot of overlap. And one of our deep concerns is how can we, how can we transform in ways which will enable us to become more effective instruments of help and healing, particularly at this uh, really dangerous time we're in. And the co-host of that podcast is uh, John John Dupuy. Is that correct? It is, yeah, John Dupuy, who I think you know, and a wonderful human being who yeah. who founded the uh, Integral Recovery Movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a question about um, you know, there's likely to be FDA approval of 
uh, MDMA therapy. And I actually am teaching a course on that to facilitators. Do you think that that has a much uh, ability to heal people? Or do you know anything about it? Or what are your thoughts about the whole use of psychedelics coming back and MDMA coming back to potentially give people uh, therapeutic and transpersonal wisdom? Uh, well, a lot of us worked really hard for this moment, for the for the re-legitima the legitimization of psychedelics as therapeutic and spiritual tools, and I think a lot of us are also concerned. Um, let's uh, so there's let's say that there's a lot of evidence that these are very powerful therapeutic tools. So before the research was locked down, there were like something like a thousand studies that were done and they're almost totally forgotten now. Um, but the, the evidence was clear. They could be remarkably therapeutic in very difficult situations, such as addiction, for example, and, and or near death, people approaching death and etc. So lots of lots of promise there, and uh, of course a history across large parts of the world of their use in spiritual traditions. Shamanism, you had mentioned, uh, Jonathan, and, and psychedelics were a major part of shamanism. But they also played subsidiary roles in a variety of other traditions. They don't get much press, but. You know, they've, they've been around for dated back archaeologically to at least 9,000 years ago, uh, probably for shamanic use. And and so these have been widely used and and in spiritual traditions. And now we have the potential of using them therapeutically. I think that's wonderful. And I think there are a couple of dangers. One is that they are currently being hyped in ways which are reminiscent of the 60s, you know, the curals, and they're not, nothing is. Second, the uh, I think the risks are being minimized by some people, and there are some people who just should not use psychedelics. That's mm -hmm. flat out. If you've had, uh, say, manic depressive disorder, psychotic episode, you know, watch out, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the research is clear that with adequate screening and adequate care and supervision uh, or guidance, these can be extraordinarily safe for some people and extremely valuable. So the other challenge is that there is a flood of capitalism. You know, the word that was going to come to mind was vultures descending on the field, wanting to make a buck out of them. And so much of their value has been their spiritual dimension. And I just don't see how it's going to be possible to have uh, profit as the central motive and retain the spiritual profundity and depths and intentions with these things. So that's a, that's a big challenge. There's a, an interesting question about their role in spiritual practice and uh, they have been spiritual tools, but what's their role? So I was very intrigued by that. So some years ago, I did a little study. I interviewed six spiritual teachers, all of whom had were certified in their own traditions as teachers and were recognized, actually a lot of them quite well-recognized teachers. And all of them had had a profound opening with psychedelics. So here were people who could compare and what they said was almost unanimous. It was quite striking. All of them agreed that, yes, these tools can be very valuable if used in the context of a spiritual practice. By themselves, they do not constitute a path, but they can be very valuable spiritual adjuncts. So yeah. that's a pretty clear answer. Great, great. Any last uh, questions, Brian, that you want to give before we maybe go into a guided meditation? No, I'm I'm curious, uh, Roger. You mentioned before we started that you had recently come across a meditation that you might be interested in sharing with our listeners. Yeah, I did, Brian. And given that I don't feel as familiar with it as I probably should before offering it to others, and also because one of our central focuses here has been in our discussion has been on our global crises and 
how could we can become more effective instruments of service, I think I'd like to just offer a brief little meditation for anyone who's interested to, which can be a very brief but very powerful way of enhancing one's skills and capacities for life and for service. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Are we ready? Yep. Sure. <laughs> okay, so... I invite you to just take a moment to relax. If you're in a safe place to do so, feel free to close your eyes. And take a couple of slow, deep breaths. Breathing in. And letting go. Breathing in and letting go. And I invite you to think of some quality or capacity or skill that you feel would be really beneficial for you to have. A skill or capacity which would enable you to live more fully, Contribute more effectively. Be more joyful. And think of that quality. And now bring to mind or allow your mind to come up with someone who really is an example of that quality, that capacity, an exemplar, a role model who really embodies that quality of heart and mind. It could be someone you know, it could be someone you've heard of, it could be a historical figure, or it could be an archetype, an image. But someone who really embodies and has that quality capacity as a strength. And now, See that person in front of you. See that person who embodies this quality, this capacity, this strength, this virtue that you would benefit from. Feel what it's like to be with them. And now visualize this person melting inward, just melting inward into light so that they become a condensed ball of light, energy, and this quality. Light and energy embodying this quality. And then bring this ball of light up and over, so it's just over your head, center of your head. And imagine it coming down through the crown, down the neck and spine and coming into the heart. And when it comes into the heart, this ball of light, energy, virtue explodes through your body-mind, filling it, imbuing it with this quality, this capacity. So now this virtue, this strength, this excellence fills your body-mind, pervades it, and this virtue, this strength, is now one of your great strengths. And feel what it's like to embody this quality, this strength. What posture is associated with it? You might like to even exaggerate that posture a little bit. And store the experience of that strength and that posture that it evokes. And so now, anytime you wish, you can just evoke this memory, this image, this body posture, and that strength, that virtue will be fully available to you. And when you're ready, Bring that quality back with you as you open your eyes. 
come back to your environment, but embodying that quality, able to more effectively serve and more joyfully and fully live. Beautiful. Okay. I love that meditation. I'm very grateful for that. I loved it too. And it really uh, serves what we love to do on this podcast, which is offering things that are just really useful and helpful to our listeners. So I'm very grateful to you for that and for uh, this entire conversation. Well, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for the good work you do. And uh, and thanks for the invitation to have explore together over this hour. It's been great. How can people find out about your uh, your website is drrogerwalsh.com. Right, yep. Uh, I think most of my articles and talks are up there. So, and so that and the podcast, again, is Deep Transformation, Self-Society, Spirit. I think between those two should give you enough to keep busy and get bored. So, <laughs> and, and your many books, which I uh, highly recommend. You're a very uh, clear writer that can kind of say stuff in a way that you go, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, I'm delighted. <laughs> thank you. Well, I thank our Patreon supporters. People can go to patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers and support us and get a bunch of goodies if uh, if you want. And uh, any last words from Brian or Roger? Oh, just thank you for this opportunity. It's wonderful to be able to have a conversation at this level and to explore around these topics with fellow explorers. So thank you. Yes, yeah, so that's that really sums it up for me too. Just thank you very much and uh, for for the generosity of your time and wisdom and the best of luck on your new book. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Until next time, friends, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends, because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.